Well, I heard there was a ball game last night. Uh, we could do without that this morning. Security's on the way in. I don't have to tell you, we live in a sports crazy world. And you know, the thing about sports, regardless of what it is, um, if you're a sports fan, we tend to be very offensive oriented. Fans like to see action. We want to see points put on the board. Alabama fans are the world's worst. If they have won by 55 points, it was a failure. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So we want to rack it up, man, just cha-ching, cha-ching. And uh, that's true whether it's football or baseball or soccer or hockey. We tend to be very offensive-minded because that may, that's what, for the fan anyway, it's what makes the game fun to watch. Uh, but I'm kind of one of those old school guys where I don't mind in a football game if it's a defensive struggle. I think a game can be just, in fact, the first Alabama football game that I ever went to with my son not long after moving, it was an Alabama-Tennessee game. And the final score was six to three. Alabama won against one of the finest games I'd ever seen in my life, defensive classic. Um, I don't mind a pitcher's duel in baseball where it's a one to nothing game or a two to nothing game because I'm a big fan of pitching, the art of pitching. And uh, the reality is though, most people like to see the offense work very strong. And you know, if you apply that to your Christian faith, most of the time as we walk with the Lord and as we apply our faith to life every day, regardless if it's at home or at school or at work, we're called to pretty much be on the offensive. We're supposed to be proactive when it comes to reading the Bible, not reactive and picking it up once a week and bringing it to church and letting the pastor tell us what's in the Bible. No, we're supposed to pick it up every day and read it. We need to be proactive in our understanding of God's word. We're supposed to be proactive in prayer. We're supposed to be proactive in supporting the church. We're supposed to be proactive when it comes to giving, proactive in engaging our culture, proactive in sharing our faith. And so most of the time, when we apply our Christianity to real life, Christianity really is something that's supposed to be offensive-oriented, aggressive, on the uh, proactive side. But having said that, how many of you have found from time to time, as it relates to your faith, that you've been put on the defensive and had to play defense when it comes to your faith? Sometimes we have to play defense. Sometimes it's because of people. Sometimes it's because of circumstances. Sometimes because of both. The Apostle Paul, as you should know by now, found himself in a position of having to play defense on any number of occasions. There were many times where he was challenged in the synagogue, times where he was thrown out of the synagogue, times when angry crowds, mobs even got stirred up, times when he had to stand before tribunals and answer charges, and give account. There were many times in his life where he had to go on the defensive. And sometimes you'll have to do that as well. Paul is now back in Jerusalem by the time we get to Acts chapter 21. His three missionary journeys are done. He's done the work that God had called him to do. And back in Ephesus, he set his sights to go back to Jerusalem And uh, he has a purpose for doing that, as we're going to see in a minute. But no sooner did he got back to Jerusalem, he's put on the defensive. 
for reasons that we're going to see are totally unjust, totally unfair. And truth be told, from this point all the way to the end of the book of Acts, Paul's going to stay on the defensive. And we're going to learn some things about how he does that that I think should be very important. Look with me, beginning in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. Now, let me just say, I believe the last thing in the world Paul wanted when he came back to Jerusalem at the end of this third missionary journey was more conflict. I think, don't you think he'd had plenty of conflict? Don't you think he was tired of being beaten with rods, thrown in jail, answering false charges? He didn't want more of that. Jerusalem was a place he'd spent a lot of his life, a place where he was trained, a place where he was tutored, a place where he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great teachers of the law. He had the best education there. He'd served much of his ministry there. He was a rising star in rabbinic Judaism. He loved Jerusalem. The last thing he wanted, in fact, he was going back there to be a blessing for crying out loud. He, he, he's not after controversy. He's showing up there to bring some much needed relief to the church at Jerusalem, which was primarily a Jewish Christian church unlike the churches out in the Gentile world that Paul had been founding. He's coming back home to his fellow brethren and he's bringing bags of money with him. He'd been on a capital campaign, remember, through Macedonia and Greece prior to leaving on a ship to go back to Jerusalem. And for the better part of two years, he'd been collecting this offering from the Gentile believers as an act of union and solidarity with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, people that they'd never met, people that they did not know, but people who were hurting and people with whom they had fellowship, even though it was experienced miles and miles apart. And so Paul goes up with these representatives of the Gentile church that had traveled with him all carrying these bags of money. They must have had it in coinage. There's no way to wire transfer it or send it by Zelle off of your mobile phone. You can send thousands of dollars just by punching a couple of numbers on a cell phone today. But they had to carry it with them. And so here they go to the Jerusalem elders and the elders share all that God had been doing. Literally, as the Bible says here, thousands of Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They were still Jews who were zealous for the law. And that's where the trouble starts. That's where we see a problem here, you know. There's this sharing, there's this depositing of the offering, there's this rejoicing over thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and then there's a yeah, but. And don't you hate it when there has to be a yeah, but. Somebody wants to talk to you, 
And they start with all this butter and fluff and then they hit you with the butt. How many of you ever had that happen before? They hit you with the butt. When you get hit with the butt, it can hurt. I'm just gonna leave that one alone this morning. And it hurts here, I think. It's usually something unsubstantiated that somebody's heard and that's typically not true. There's a rumor going on in Jerusalem. And the rumor, of course, is that Paul was out there in these Gentile territories teaching the Jews that the law of Moses was no longer relevant. They didn't have to pay it any attention. They could ignore it. They didn't have to circumcise their baby boys anymore. They didn't have to go to the Jewish feast. They didn't have to acknowledge Passover or Pentecost. None of which, of course, was true. Paul had never taught anything of the such. Paul was a believer. We know that. Paul was a preacher of the gospel. We know that. But let me remind everybody, Paul was also a Jew. And Paul never stopped being a Jew. There's no evidence that Paul ever abandoned his Jewishness in terms of some of the ceremonies of the Jews that he continued to participate in. In fact, he's in quite the hurry once he leaves Ephesus to get back to Jerusalem by springtime so he could do what? Participate in the Feast of Pentecost. So there is quite ample evidence that he still participated in Passover. He'd never taught anybody that they, if they were Jewish, they shouldn't circumcise their babies. All of that was just stuff that was made up. There wasn't a person on the planet who loved the Jewish people more than the Apostle Paul. The last time he was in Ephesus, he wrote the most important letter that he would ever write, the letter to the Romans. And there's a great statement there at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 where he says, I love my Jewish brethren so much, and I'm paraphrasing here, I love them so much that if it were possible for them to drop all of their pretense and come to faith in Christ, I would sacrifice my own salvation and stand accursed if that would somehow bring my brethren to Jesus Christ. He's willing to go to hell for the Jews. And so there's nobody on the planet that loves the Jews more than the Apostle Paul, but they didn't know that, and they sure didn't act like it. What Paul had taught was that neither Jew nor Gentile had to be circumcised in order to be saved. That nobody on the planet had to first become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Everybody tracking with me? That's what he taught. He didn't didn't think that people needed to be circumcised as a condition of salvation. In fact, the elders of the church at Jerusalem had agreed with him about that. That's why you have Acts 15 in your Bibles. They had agreed about that. Gentiles can become a part of the family and they don't have to become Jews first by submitting to the right of circumcision. So you can imagine in the midst of this great reunion, Paul hadn't seen James for a long time. In the midst of this great reunion, this great gospel report, these bags of money being dropped for the struggling church at the feet of those elders, how surprised Paul must have been when James and the leaders looked at him, looked at that offering, received it and said, okay, thanks. And now by the way, This has happened to me (laughs) more times than I can count over the last 25 years. I remember one time, Judy and I were pastoring our first church. We were having a yard sale. We lived in the parsonage, which was right next door to the church, and we were having a yard sale. Ever ever told you all about this story before? We were having a yard sale. 
We were having the yard sale because we were getting ready to move out of the parsonage. Hallelujah. And we were actually going to get our own home, building our own house. And obviously there were some things we didn't want to take with us. And so we had a yard sale. And uh, we just wanted people in our church and people in our community to give us money for the privilege of hauling off our garbage. Somebody say amen, which is basically what a yard sale is. And so we were having this successful yard sale, cars everywhere, you know, and all this stuff. And one of my deacons showed up and said, can I talk to you a minute? And I said, sure. And he said, we got a problem. And I <clears throat> said, well, what's the problem? Don't be raining on my parade. We're making money here. Amen. What's the problem? And he said, well, I just came from McDonald's, which was literally right across the street from where we live. And uh, there's a bunch of old codgers in there, and they are convinced that you're in trouble with the law. I said, what does that mean? He said, they've seen you in this yard sale over the past couple of days, and somehow the rumor's gotten started that you've gotten in trouble with the law and you're having to sell out in order to get out of town. And I thought it was a joke at first, and this is a guy I really trusted, and I soon found out this was not a joke. And I said, what is the deal about that? What does it mean, sell out to get out of town? That sounds like something in a Western where the marshal comes up. I mean, if I'm in trouble with the law, would not somebody like come and arrest me? Or do they still say, you need to get out of town and never come back? I don't know they do that anymore. And so it ended up, you know, not being a big deal. And we laugh about that now. I did have to say something about it because it spread in that little community like wildfire. But I'm telling you, there are times when people can make up stuff that's not true and it can ruin your life. It can mess up the rest of your future. So what's to be done now that the crowd knows Paul's back in town There's false rumors going around about what he's been teaching that are not true. Anger's beginning to boil. Well, that's the question that these church leaders raise beginning in verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, in parentheses, and they're not obligated to maintain the law because they're Gentiles. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice that when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, remember, these are all Christian people that are concocting this plan, but they're Jewish Christian people. And they're concocting this plan in order to placate other Jewish Christian people who are offended because they're still tightly tied to the law. Paul had addressed this issue when he wrote his correspondence to the Corinthians 
about the distinction between strong believers and weak believers. And there were a lot of Jewish believers in the early church who were not very strong in their faith. They had kind of an unhealthy attachment to the law because they were Jews. And so it's easy to understand it. And so this plan is concocted by the Jerusalem elders to kind of calm the Jewish believers who just didn't trust Paul and who didn't feel safe apart from their traditions and safe apart from their customs. There were four Jewish men who were completing a Nazarite vow. And remember, we've already seen where Paul himself has completed a Nazarite vow. All the way back to Jerusalem, where presumably he went to the temple at the end of it, like Nazarites, these four guys here, are supposed to do. And so that's another example of why these charges against him were not true. Paul still observed many of the customs of his heritage. But they say, we got four guys here completing a Nazarite vow. Paul, now they say this, right, when Paul's brought them all this money, now we want you to give up some more money and pay for their expenses. In other words, pay for their sacrificial offering. They'll have to buy that sacrifice. You go and buy it for each of them, which was probably not a cheap deal. And then you go through the purification rites with them, not as a Nazarite, but because you've been in Gentile territory all these months and years, you've been away from the holy city and away from the temple, you probably just need to go through the purification rites in order to get properly cleansed to go back and worship in the temple. You do that along with them and let everybody see that you're not hostile to the customs of Moses. And Paul agrees to do it. Now, I'm telling you, depending on who you read, there are a lot of people that champion Paul for doing this, and there are a lot of people who want to spank Paul for doing this. Because there are a lot of people that see this as a sellout. Christian don't have to do that. He didn't have to go through those purification rites. He didn't have to offer sacrifice. He's the guy that had taught that all of that had been fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he should have held his ground. Well, you know what would have happened in Jerusalem had he held his ground. I mean, it ends up bad as, as it is. It would have been even worse had he, does, had he done that. So Paul agrees to do it. And my own personal opinion is it's a very humble Paul that's doing something unnecessary for him as a believer to do, but he's doing it because he loves the church. And he's doing it because he wants to foster unity in the church. And he's doing it because he feels like in his heart that this is not a compromise of truth. I'm a firm believer in doing whatever it takes to maintain unity and harmony in the church, aren't you? But not at the expense of sacrificing truth. You, you don't sacrifice, you don't put truth on an anvil, you don't sacrifice truth on an anvil of unity. So some things are more important than unity, namely the word of God. So we'll hold fast to the word of God even if there are Groups of people don't like it because our commitment is to Christ and to his word first, right? But Paul didn't feel like he was abandoning the truth of the gospel by doing this. So he's in a hard place. You ever been in a hard place? Paul's going to get hammered no matter what he does here. Has anybody in the house ever been in that position? With your kids, at work? in a leadership role, in your connect group, whatever the case might be, where it didn't matter what you did, you were gonna get hammered by competing elements. 
Well, that's kind of the position that he's in. Every pastor in America knows exactly what that feels like. And I think most all of you in leadership know exactly what that feels like as well. So what do you do when you're in that situation? Well, you make the best decision that you can in light of Scripture and in light of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. One thing you never want to do is violate the Word of God. That would be compromised with a capital C, and you never want to do that. You never want to try to encourage unity if the encouragement of unity is going to cause you to sin, if it's going to cause you to violate your conscience before God. That's something that you should never do. But sometimes, as Paul has already taught, sometimes you have to limit your Christian freedom in such a way so as to promote unity in the body of Christ if it keeps a fellow brother or sister from stumbling, right? Whether it's eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols, that was a particular illustration that he used. We could insert any number of things there. But sometimes you have to make a decision to do that. That's not compromise, that's just conceding. There's a difference between making a compromise and making a concession. And what Paul's doing here is he's making a concession with respect to what he considers to be a non-essential matter in terms of the gospel. He's making a concession regarding a non-essential matter in order to demonstrate his love for the church, his love for his fellow brother Jews in order to foster unity. And this is exactly the same reason, if you will remember, why Paul had Timothy circumcised at the beginning of his second missionary journey. Y'all remember that? They pick up Timothy, bring him on the leadership team in Lystra. And Timothy was half Jew, half Gentile. His mother was a Jew, which made him a Jew, but his father was a Gentile who didn't practice the tenets of the Jewish faith. So Timothy had never been circumcised. Well, what was Paul's approach in all of these cities that he went into? Where did Paul and his team go first? To the synagogue, to Jews first. So what does he have Timothy do? He has Timothy circumcised. After having spent all this time in Jerusalem explaining why Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, he's not having Timothy circumcised in order to be saved. That would be a compromise of the gospel. He's having Timothy circumcised to make him more effective in their ministry to reaching Jews for Jesus Christ. It's not a compromise. It's a concession on a non-essential matter. Paul will say to the Galatians, Neither circumcision or uncircumcision makes any difference to God. What counts is a new creation. In other words, a transformed life. And so, as long as it doesn't violate Scripture and as long as it doesn't cause you to sin and as long as it doesn't trouble your conscience before God, sometimes you make concessions so as to not cause brothers and sisters to stumble. Does that make sense, brothers and sisters? Amen? That's what Paul's doing. So I'd be careful about throwing him under the bus here because I think he's trying to do the right thing, realizing that no matter what he does, somebody's not going to be happy with him. And the fact of the matter is they go through all of this effort and Paul does everything that Pastor James, who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's this James. He does everything that Pastor James asked him to do 
and it still doesn't work. We pick up our reading in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled his holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed, they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion and he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and they saw the tribune and the soldiers and when they saw them, they stopped beating Paul when then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, say it out loud together with me, crying out, away with him, which is exactly what the crowd cried out in Jerusalem 30 years earlier about somebody else whom they didn't like, whose name was Jesus of Nazareth. It's interesting, Luke writes the gospel of Luke, writes the book of Acts, At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we've got a guy going into Jerusalem and a mob forming, shouting away with him, crucify him. And now at the end of Acts, we've got another representative of the Lord going into Jerusalem and a crowd rising up and a mob developing and there's beatings and harshness and the crowd's crying the same thing 30 years after the fact, away with him. Paul's trying to do what he believes to be the right thing. It's completely misunderstood by many in the crowd. The Bible says here's some Jews from Asia. You know where they were probably from, Ephesus. The last time we saw a mob, it was in Ephesus. In the shadow of the temple of Diana. Some of those from the synagogue at Ephesus had made their way to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. They were very familiar with Paul. They didn't like him when he was in Ephesus. They didn't like him when he showed up in Jerusalem. And the Bible says they're the ones that are behind the raising of this mob. And many of those Jews who obviously never liked Paul assumed that he'd taken Trophimus the Gentile, who was also from Ephesus, past the court of the Gentiles into the inner sanctuary. Paul had done no such thing. But the rumor mills and the gossip mills and the gossip columns are hard things to stop once they get going 
And before you know it, there's another out-of-control mob that begins to beat the daylights out of Paul until a group of Roman soldiers from the Fortress Antonia, which was adjacent to the temple, could get there to find out what the fuss was all about and get Paul out of that back to safety. Now, what do you do when you're trying to do the right thing, but you find yourself on the defensive with important people all around you crying that out, away with him, away with him. What do you do when you're trying to do the right thing and your boss cries out, away with him? What do you do when you're trying to honor God and bless others, but your friends start crying out, away with him? Your family cries out, away with her. Your associates cry out, be done with him. Well, three things I want you to consider as we wrap up this morning. First, stay calm. Last time I was in England, I came back with a red coffee cup that had that important saying that was all over the city of London during the Battle of Britain, keep calm and carry on. I heard a Navy SEAL say one time something that I've never forgotten. This guy was in all kinds of madness throughout his military career. And he said the most important thing we learned was the importance of staying calm because, as he put it, calm is contagious. I love that. Calm is contagious. So is panic, by the way. Amen. But never forget, calm is contagious. And the beautiful thing about Paul is you never see him losing his cool. Very rarely. In fact, about the only time he does it was with Barnabas. But as Paul has gone along, I mean, Paul has developed. He's become an encourager. He's become more of a lover of people. And you don't ever see Paul throughout these missionary journeys generally losing his calm. I've had people all through the years come in to talk about a family situation or a personal situation, and they just all worked up. And the more they talk, the louder they get. You know what I'm talking about? So that about halfway through the conversation, you can hear them all the way from Molino. And I've just learned through the years, speak with a calm voice. Barlow is the best. Dr. Brian Barlow is the best at this. (laughs) He's the guy you want in the room when tempers get out of control because he's always talking like this. And the more he talks, the quieter everybody gets. And before you know it, we're all talking like this. Calm is contagious, so don't shout back. He'd been through every kind of hardship you could imagine on these three missionary journeys. And there are others that he'd never experienced that he will before the book of Acts is over. And you never see him lose his cool, lose his composure. This is a man who practices what he preaches and preaches what he practices. And when he says a believer should learn not to return evil for evil, but to overcome evil with what? good. He's quick to do that in his own life. And that's what you're going to see him do here for the next several years of his life. Stay calm. Second, stay committed. Stay committed. Don't fold. Stay true to the mission. Stay true to what you believe to be God's calling in your life. Stay committed. The Bible says that Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary in doing good For in due season, we will reap a harvest if we do not what? Say it out loud. If we do not give up. 
Now, Paul had already been given a prophecy. You're going to get messed up when you go to Jerusalem. Agabus had given him a visual prophecy. In fact, I think Paul already had an inkling of that back when he spoke to the Ephesian elders back one chapter earlier. That's just a great passage there. He meets with those elders and he's on his way back to Jerusalem, but he stops at Miletus and he visits with them. Then he makes a statement there that I have outlined in red in my Bible. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more he realizes it may not be as easy as I thought it was going to be, but he never turns around. He never doesn't not go. Why? Because he believes that to be the will of God for his life. He believes that God has called him to take this relief offering and to personally deliver it, to be a personal blessing by his presence to those fellow brothers and sisters that make up the Jerusalem church. And Paul could have said when Agabus gave him that prophecy, well, forget it then. It's just easier not to face it. It's easier not to do it, which would have been true. Let's just go to Antioch instead. Everybody will love me in Antioch. Everybody will want to see me in Antioch. Forget it. But he doesn't do it. He's like Martin Luther. (laughs) His back was against the wall and he'd confronted the ruling powers, the religious elites of his day. And his life was on the line. He looks and he says, I'm committed. My soul is captive to the word of God Here I stand, I can do no other. And the last words he says, God help me. He just entrusts himself to the sovereignty of God. He stayed committed and went on the defensive, so should you. Y'all with me so far? Amen. Stay calm, stay committed. Finally, doing that will require that you stay courageous. Keep your courage. Keep your courage. Do I need to remind anybody today that living for Jesus is not for the faint of heart? Somebody say amen. Living for Jesus is not for the faint of heart. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was crucified. Paul was persecuted. Paul would ultimately be beheaded for his faith. And everybody that lives boldly for Jesus and refuses to compromise truth in a world that's hostile toward the truth because it wants to make up its own version of truth, will be persecuted in some form, way, or shape as well. Jesus said that. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you if you follow me. Paul's going to make a speech in Acts 22 that unfortunately we're not going to have time to unpack completely. That mob is going crazy, but he begs the tribune to let him speak to the crowd, and he's going to give a speech to the crowd It's a very bold and effective speech about his personal testimony. And he's going to defend his ministry. But if you read that, you're going to find that Paul defends himself without being defensive in the way that he defends himself. And I think that's something that all of us can learn to do. Because you all have dealt with people who are defensive in a negative sense. They tend to respond to anger, with anger. They raise their voice, they get hostile, life becomes all about them, 
And that is never the way Paul makes his defense. His hum, he's humble, his tone is conciliatory. He's always about the business of putting the gospel first, making the, much of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's just learned how to speak the truth in love, which I have found, and you probably have too, is something that's easier to talk about than to actually do. When we're on the receiving end of injustice, most of us will respond to anger with anger. But unconditional love is the Jesus way. And when your back is against the wall because you're having to play defense, let me just say, it takes a lot of courage to keep loving people unconditionally. And it takes a lot of courage to leave all justice and any vengeance to a sovereign God because you know that God will always stand with you even in the roughest of times and God himself, now or later, will always get the last word. And that's something that ought to comfort and encourage your hearts. When you find your back against the wall, sometimes having to play defense. Be like Paul, but most importantly, make sure that you always look and react like Christ. This is God's word. Let all who agree say amen.